Hey everyone, welcome back to my Blackadian universe. This week I'm back speaking with Solrak about the Harlem Renaissance, and this week we're focusing our conversation on blues music, rhythm and blues music, and its importance in African American culture, uh, some of the blues greats, and of course its origins. Um, I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. We're back and we're talking, uh, continuing our talk on the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be focusing a little bit today on the blues musicians. But first, I think it would be good if we just, you know, give a little recap of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the Great Migration uh, and mm-hmm. Jim Crow. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Of course, I enjoy every time I get to talk about the Great Migration because uh, it just shows us um, the period where we went from struggle to triumph. Um, anytime we think about the migration, uh, just you know, between 1910 and 1940, there was an exodus from the South because prior to that, 90% of African Americans lived in the South and then they migrated to Northern cities in the Midwest, uh, primarily because of the brutal treatment that was uh, enforced in the South due to Jim Crow laws and racial uh, racial animus and so many other things. Uh, basically, when we were freed uh, for the um, journey, Emancipation Proclamation, we went from one place into another uh, with the Jim Crow laws being in effect in the South. And just for those who may not remember, uh, Jim Crow laws were a code of conduct, basically, and laws that were enforced to keep african-americans enslaved mentally and financially and basically it made you become a second-class citizen there were certain things you weren't able to do you couldn't look a a white man in the eye you couldn't ride in the front seat with a white person you had to get in the back um those who remember emmett till uh he was killed just because he whistled allegedly whistled at a white woman so those laws were very brutal so brutal in fact that they led to lynchings at least it got to a point when it was at its maximum level there was three lynchings a week mm-hmm. and it was seen as sport where people would come in big crowds to see people get hanged uh it was similar to the death penalty today and people would leave with souvenirs whether it be a bone from the person that was lynched uh, ear or some type of body part as a souvenir so it just shows the brutality that was uh exemplified during that time mm-hmm. and just to carry over to where we are today. So we, we, so those things were happening during the South and then a, a window of opportunity opened up for the African-Americans that lived in the South. They were able to migrate up North uh, due to a shortage of workers in the factories because the war was happening and they needed, they had a, a need for workers to fill those spots or positions that were vacant due to people that went to war. So they migrated up North for that opportunity. Um, and since and the largest concentration of those African Americans were in Harlem, which is a section of uh, New York, uh, and in that area, there was a closely three miles, three miles um, co- concentrated area, which was a total of three miles, and within the area there was one point seventy, well, one hundred seventy-five thousand people um, that lived there, and because that area existed, it allowed a, a opportunity for creativity. 
And as we stated before, it gave us a chance to create a new identity. Yes, absolutely. And so I know we touched on it before in our other uh, discussions just about, you know, it didn't mean that there wasn't any racism up in the North. It's just mm-hmm. more opportunities were up there uh, for um, African-American people. So mm-hmm. it uh, and it created an absolute new identity and it helped, uh, you know, with some of the uh, key pieces of our culture, you know, that still exist today. Mm-hmm. So, um, so very important. I know we talked a little bit about uh, some of the music. Yes. Uh, time, some of the musicians. Yes, we did. We mm-hmm. talked about last week or last episode, we talked about mm-hmm. jazz musicians. And all of this was a part of creating that new identity. Uh, just to kind of tie it in. Um, and again, we want you to put on that seatbelt and continue to ride with us because we're definitely going to take you on a journey, especially if you're going uh, from one episode to the next. It's beneficial for you, and I'm speaking to the audience right now, for you to listen to every episode because when we do the recap, we, we highlight the main points, but if you really want more details and you want a more in-depth discussion, it's necessary or important for you to listen to every episode. That way you can follow exactly where we're taking you on this journey. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to throw that that nugget in there real quick, just so we can just encourage the listeners, even though you may hear this podcast, go to the previous ones. In fact, listen to all the black Canadian podcasts, because all of them are good, interesting, <laughs> and it gives you a good perspective on racism, not only in America, but in Canada as well. She highlights some very important things. So follow her podcast in the process. But as we go and talk about the musicians as a whole, we were fighting against uh, identity. I, for lack of a better term, identity crisis because of the fact that in the South, there were ideas or stereotypes that were perpetrated. Uh, One of them was due to blackface, which is, you know, I'm going to plug my music right now. Uh, A song that I wrote about talking about how uh, blackface existed for over 200 years. But the the premise or the primary purpose of blackface was to degrade African-Americans. They would have uh, white performers that would put on black, um, they would put, use burnt corks or they use oil or grease, I think you call it oil grease or oil paint. And basically mm-hmm. they'll paint their face black and they'll wear a uniform, wear an outfit and speak in degrading tones and kind of degrade African-Americans, which gave a stereotype that we were uneducated. We were, um, you know, uh, didn't lack the civility to be considered uh, a human being. Prior to that, through slavery was seen as three-fifths of a man. A horse was more valuable than a slave at that time. So they wanted to carry on that stereotype, that idea, that image, and that image existed for years. And not only that, we have the uh, degradation that was that was caused by the mammy um, stereotype of character, uh, mm-hmm. which you you mentioned last week that your family wouldn't allow you to have <laughs> that, that uh, pancake box. I had it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was in my household, but you were fortunate that you had the one with the Canadian flag our Canadian yeah. symbol, so you didn't have to yeah. in, indulge in that moment uh, where they used it, even though she changed over the years and started wearing the perm, but yeah. prior to that, she didn't have the perm. She looked like the mammy that was on the plantation. Um, so, yes. <laughs> so so, with that being said, that was one of the stereotypes we're fighting against. We're fighting against the coon stereotypes, which um, mm-hmm. you would have the you know person looking very buffoonish. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. let me tie it in even with the musicians, because we're going to talk about it in a moment. But some of the musicians, even when they performed, they kind of had that that buffoonish kind of look, like they're 
make their mm-hmm. eyes bulge out. They will always have that big Kool-Aid smile, you know, every time they perform. <laughs> Ideally, to try to make the the audience that was listening that were non you know, non-black to be more accepting of the music mm-hmm. uh, because of the way they kind of performed when they did it. You know, they always looked a certain way. Like they had to be very polite, non-offensive with their music. I mean, it changed with rap. Now rap's a little different mm-hmm. than what it was back then, but you did what was socially acceptable because ultimately the goal was to expand the music and to create other opportunities for it to be heard. And sometimes they look, they may have that buffoonerous buffoon- look because we look back Today we'll be like, well, why do you look it like this? Or you know, we had a certain perspective on that end. Go ahead. I, mm-hmm. I know you're about to say something. Oh no, yeah, I. It's uh, just interesting about how you know, even in creating something, it's about you know, self-expression and creation. The fact that it was still being created through like this lens of you know, mm-hmm. not wanting to to white people is just you know a very key point that um, you know when we're looking back at it um, we can see it and just imagining you know what they were experiencing at that time mm-hmm. is just astounding so yeah 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 because, mm-hmm. because most of the musicians that we knew back in those times especially the jazz musicians even blues musicians most of them got their start in Bonderville um, shows mm-hmm. that's how they got started basically and you know mm-hmm. those Bonderville shows they basically were you know they was like comical shows but they degraded you know african-americans in the process um they had their emphasis that didn't really see us in the most positive light uh but it did give these artists a start and it did give jazz per se an opportunity to spread across a more national arena because before then it was more concentrated we know that it started in new orleans um and it was people that, and they got their start mostly in Storyville. And in that particular area, it was bars and brothel. But there was a lot of creativity that was going on during that time. Uh, some of the well-known musicians we know today, one by the name of Louis Armstrong and Jelly, mm-hmm. you know, Jelly Roll Morton, who was one of the first people to have their music um, in print. Uh, he was a wonderful pianist, and he influenced a lot of other uh, musicians in the process. And then we also have to think about some of the other jazz musicians that came along the way um joseph buddy bowden who was who was also one of the influential musicians at the time uh, for ragtime there isn't much written about him if you want to know a little bit about joseph, joseph uh, buddy bowden look for a movie called bowden it came out and it kind of gives his story it doesn't give you um it's it's kind of told in a way where it's it's kind of, it's almost like a documentary but kind of told in a cinematic uh, version or a cinematic way, uh, but it doesn't really give you a lot of information about it, but you can try to get more details about him in Wikipedia. But what you want to know about him, he was one of the first people to kind of influence the jazz movement or uh, ragtime. Um, at the time, jazz was called jazz, which is J-A-S-S, eventually became jazz, J-A-Z-Z. And so it tra- it transformed, uh, ever, it, it evolved over time. Uh, but even as we talk about the musicians, don't we want to talk about Kenny Duke Ellerton or Duke Ellerton, um, who mm-hmm. was so, um, I would say, so far or beyond his time that he didn't even want his music to be called jazz. He wanted to be called American music because he felt like it was mm-hmm. on another level. And sometimes he would say it was beyond category. But he was beyond category because he was very influential during the Harlem Renaissance and very, and he was always one of the pictures at the cotton club which we'll talk about later on 
And then lastly, let's not forget about Ella Fitzgerald, who was <laughs> phenomenal within herself. And she was just, um, she was just made such a contribution and she was well known for scatting and just the way her vocal range was just a powerful singer. And she, she's, uh, had a, a year, years of doing music and I could go in more detail, but I want to leave that room for people to listen to the previous podcast. I don't want to spoil it for mm-hmm. them. So we'll let them go and listen <laughs> to the previous one. And that way they can get more details about each of these performers. But those are the people that we talked about last week and we ended it on hip hop and jazz music, how jazz even influenced hip hop music, which was called jazz hip hop. And some of the notable people, um, if you watch my timeline today, I kind of went over some of them just to give people a chance to hear the music as well. But some of the well-known artists or groups were um, were um, Gangstar, which included Guru and DJ Premier. One of their songs called uh, Manifest had a, a sample from Dizzy Gillespie, who was also a jazz musician as well. In fact, we're going to... Um, we may talk about, as a matter of fact, I may talk about him today um, as far as uh, musicianship is concerned. And then we have, uh, we also have a tribe called Quest and who mm. use jazz music. And Diggable, Dig, Diggable Planets uh, had the song Cool Like That of the Rebirth of Slick, which also had the jazz uh, melody in there. And Jungle Brothers, and there were many more. Um, Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth were also people that sampled jazz. So there was a lot of jazz and hip-hop. So it went from Hall mm-hmm. of Renaissance to becoming a worldwide phenomenon to even on our shelves in jazz, I mean, um, jazz hip-hop, which occurred during the 90s, during the eight, late 80s and early 90s. So jazz has really influenced um, different music genres. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's interesting uh, just because people might not know that hip hop is so, um, you know, old mm-hmm. um, going back and it's, you know, evolved and changed. Same thing with jazz music as all like all music does as well. Sure. So it's nice to have connection in uh, there for sure between, you know, jazz, hip hop and jazz music. Mm-hmm. So something I think people can look, uh, look into and listen to our podcast on that. Um, and I know, um, you mentioned your timeline, so absolutely everyone, please, uh, check out at Solrak's, uh, timeline, because he just gives you little wonderful tidbits of information on this, uh, I think, how many characters was it that you're I'm trying, trying to, to fit I'm trying in? to do two, <laughs> 280, which is very challenging sometimes, it's like, okay, now I have to realize what part is needful. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. hmm so that's basically what it is. It's a struggle to try to do it. And you don't want to over oversaturate the, you know, the um, social media, but sometimes it's, you have to put out a certain amount of information for people to fully grasp what you're trying to encourage at that point, you know? So that's what that is. But um, yeah, we, we're definitely going to continue on. And like I said before, if you missed anything during the recap, there are at least what we have about maybe four. Well, this is the fourth episode uh, where we're talking about the Hall of Renaissance. So you can listen to the the three previous episodes and that way you can really be caught up and really get a full grasp of what we're talking about and why it's significant to us, why it's significant uh, compared to what we experience today when it comes to our music. 
Absolutely. Yeah, so just want to move forward. Uh, this week we're talking about blues. And blues was, um, I would say, if you want to look at blues, one of the more common, um, I guess you'd say, subgenres of blues is, you know, uh, rhythm and blues, uh, or R&B, to, if we wanted to give it an abbreviation. And today we know R&B, we're familiar with R&B music, and then even from there we have soul music, and then a subgenre of soul music is neo-soul. So all of that is connected, uh, whether we realize or not, the, the different type of musics that are how they expanded over the years and how they um, influence us to this day. So just to kind of, kind of just, you know, just kind of give what blues is uh, blues was more or less, it originated in the deep South. That's the first thing, uh, you know, and it was around the 1870s uh, during that time, you know, there was, there was African musical tradition that African American music, or excuse me, African musical traditions and African American work songs and spirituals. So blues pretty much in, incorporated like spirituals, you know, which is like what we call today, like church songs or gospel, basically, uh, the earlier aspects of it. Uh, work songs, field hollers, shouts and chants and rhyme simple narratives, what we would call ballads. That's what you hear a lot of times when you hear rhythm and blues. They're basically, if, you know, they're slow to usually consider like a ballad. Um, but it was happening often, you know, during and after slavery ended. And it moved on mm -hmm. from the plantation to the juke joints, okay, <laughs> which was newly acquired, <laughs> which was happened, uh, newly acquired area for where um, former slaves would gather and they would go and there they would do gambling, you know, they would hear music and different things like that. So it was, it was an ongoing experience. And a lot of people don't realize some of the music that we deal with, the earlier parts of it um, originated during slavery. Um, because mm -hmm. when the slaves were singing, even when they were trying to escape, they would use song as a way of communicating to one another. And they would give details on how to get, you know, how to get off the plantation or, you know, the, a way to bring healing. Uh, because, you know, the, the master would only wouldn't allow so many things. But one of the things they were allowed to do was able to sing and do things of that nature. So it did help heal some of the emotional wounds that occurred, but it also was used for instructive reasons to kind of give people a way to get off the plantation at, the, at that time. So it served a lot of purposes mm -hmm. other than just singing just for entertainment purposes. It actually had, mm -hmm. it had a lot of uh, benefits other than just the, the norm that we consider today. Like we hear a love song today, it has an emotional impact, sometimes a spiritual impact, but during those times, mm -hmm. it had a, even a more definitive a, a approach because it was there to provide instruction as well in the, within the songs. Exactly. It's so innovative, mm -hmm. you know, thinking of how, um, you know, having those sort of hidden mm -hmm. messages um, open. And the other thing that's so um, interesting about the African-American, uh, like, work mm -hmm. songs is that it's way of or it was a way of preserving uh history sort of having like an oral history being passed down mm -hmm. because of course um you know, not being able to record our own history in mm -hmm. any sort of way but using um the work songs to sort of have that um heritage mm -hmm. and tradition being passed on is very important yeah. as well part of the music tradition so 
yeah, very yeah, thank you for bringing that out, but because that is important, it was very important at that time, and even today, you know, music helped us deal with trying times. Uh, that's what when you're going through mm-hmm. something, what do you normally do? You either you put on music because it'll help you get through mm-hmm. the point that you were going through at that point in time. But um, so just wanted to touch on that, and then as we move forward, we bring up one of the musicians that was very popular at the time, Alonzo Lonnie Johnson. Um, he was an American blues and jazz singer. Some of the blues singers are jazz singers. They kind of dabbled in both genres. Um, they would do blues and they also would do jazz. So sometimes we might put them under the blues category, the jazz category, but they may do more than one genre. So some of those people who are, um, you know, sticklers about, you know, uh, having a hundred percent accuracy, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we, we may have it under blues, but then they also may fall under jazz as well. So just, you know, just give us the freedom to have that opportunity to do that. Uh, I know, I mean, when I was used to do the hip hop, I have one date off and then, oh, you didn't get it right. I was like, okay, well, I am human. And sometimes <laughs> information differ depending on where you gather from. So, cause um, especially when you're dealing with information that happened 50 or, or later years ago, um, some of those, mm-hmm. even with the birth, of some of these um, musicians, you know, they, they didn't have it accurate because sometimes they would have the information in more than one source, or sometimes it wasn't even recorded because the musician may say mm-hmm. one thing, but then it may be recorded differently. So it was, you know, having pinpoint accuracy sometimes may not always fall in line, but we try to do our best with what information we have available to us. So I just want to throw that out there just in case we have one of those type of critics. <laughs> Let you know in advance. <laughs> When we do research, there are times that you can't get the information you want, so you try to go with the best information you have to try to explain the point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nice. So, we, so we'll get back to um, Johnson again. And he was a pioneer of jazz guitar and the jazz violin. Um, and it's recognized as the first to play an electronically amplified violin. So he's very significant in that sense. But one of the things that's that's very important about Johnson was that he pioneered the single string solo guitar styles that have become custom in modern rock, blues, and jazz music. So he some of the music that we're hearing today was influenced by uh, Alonzo Lonnie Johnson or Lonnie Johnson. So I just wanted to make sure. And one of the people he influenced um, for style, style of music was the Django Reinhardt and Team Ball Walker virtually all electric blues guitarists. So a lot of electric blues guitarists took, were influenced by him. And sometimes we, we listen to people, we'd be like, wow, that person is great. But we also have to take into consideration that person was influenced by somebody else. And so that, and so mm-hmm. we always want to sometimes dig a little deeper and, and you'll be surprised who they are connected to when it comes to influence. Because some people, yeah. Because yes. some people have never known. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To say it's uh, the influences in music is important to know your history because it, you know, it, um, people are influenced by so many uh, different musicians. So it's great that you're mentioning that the that uh, Lonnie Johnson is an influence for so many musicians. Absolutely. And the other thing about uh, Lonnie Johnson was that his early recordings are the first guitar recordings that display a single note. Uh, soloing style with style with string bending and vibrato, so he was he was one of the first ones to record, and he just can and he influenced people in the process. So I just wanted to make sure that 
we just kind of touch on Lonnie Johnson because he was one of the greats. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. glad we're doing this series because some of these people, and I hate to use a, you know, a phrase or, but it kind of got swept under the rug, you know, because we, mm-hmm. we have to dig deep sometimes. And, you know, I had to, I learned about him just by doing this series. Now I, I'm a person that really, you know, I believe in doing in-depth study. I know you do too. And, you know, I miss, I miss Lonnie Johnson because I didn't, I went, I didn't, I learned about him by working on this series. So, it's great that we found him and that people can rediscover who he is and what he contributed to the culture. Exactly. I think it's so important um, to remember people that are influencing the culture. And it's, I'm glad that we're getting, you know, his name out there and hopefully inspiring people to do their own research and find out more about the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, more mm-hmm. about hip hop music and, and I know as a musician yourself, uh, as an artist, you really, um, you know, want to get that out there. And it's great that you know your history. And um, hopefully we can, you know, share that passion with people and, Absolutely. and listeners too. And just want to kind of touch on the Duke joints because that was some of the places where we heard the, we heard the blues music. Um, and basically, you know, Duke joints were they basically were like um, the classic juke joints, you know, for example, they was mostly at rural crossroads that catered the rural, the rural workforce that began um, our emerge after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was in force and, and we were free from slavery. Um, the plantation workers and sharecroppers, they needed a place to relax and socialize and following a hard week. So particularly they would go to those juke joints because they were barred from white establishments due to the Jim Crow laws. And so the word juke mm-hmm. comes from the Gula word meaning juke or jug, meaning rowdy or disorderly. So basically it means a rowdy place. <laughs> That's what it basically <laughs> means. But it was in a sense because, you know, the type of environment, it was a place where they could let their hair, hair down and, and be mm-hmm. free and mm-hmm. be able to hear music and drink and gamble, do all the things that they weren't able to do elsewhere. And so it just became a place where... Um, a lot of people benefited from and, and it, it inspired a lot of large-scale commercial establishments that we know today one of them being the house of blues chains um they they gathered that from mm-hmm. the duke joint so a lot of people don't realize that and if you want to get an idea of what a duke joint is like just watch the movie curly i mean the color purple that's how you can kind of get an idea of what a duke joint was like back mm-hmm. in those days okay so so this great great what film. you say <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, it was. A great movie, yeah. It was. It was a great movie, and I liked because it captured a period of time that may have gone unnoticed if it wasn't for that movie. And you know, we're, and big ups to all of those people who wrote books, and those books were turned into movies. And we're thankful for those people who created mm-hmm. the movies and the ones who wrote the book because they help us to capture a time of history that may have gone unnoticed if it wasn't for the authors and the uh, movie producers and movie screenwriters right putting these films together for us to watch and, and see and you know yeah. and, and share it without the next generation so they capture it's like a time castle basically and we appreciate them doing it for us uh, let's get to ma rainey uh, ma rainey was one of the earliest african-american professional blues singers and one of the first generation blues singers to record now they build her as the mother of the blues <laughs> Now, Rainey, and there, there isn't a movie about Rainey, but if you do watch the next person that we're going to talk about in a moment, Bessie Smith, 
she has a movie which Queen Latifah was the actress in. She did a phenomenal job. You can kind of get an idea who yes. Ma Rainey was um, because she was played by her. She's slipping my mind now, but I think her name is Monique. That's the name that I remember. I was trying to remember her last mm-hmm. name, but Monique, she played it. She did a good job as well playing Ma Rainey. So both of them, you can see both of them in that film. And it gives you an idea what kind of interaction they had and what type of artists they were. We're just going to kind of give you the the basic understanding what their contribution was. But if you want to kind of get like a cinematic view of who they are, just watch that film and it really uh, give you a, a good perspective of who they are and what they dealt with during that time. Um, and, and one thing I want to say, as we talk about these musicians, jazz musicians, excuse me, jazz musicians, blues musicians, the writers, um, all of these people were dealing with, you know, Jim Crow was still going on down in the South. They still was dealing with discrimination yet they were able to be creative and leave their mark in our world. And so I find that very impressive that they were able to do that. But as we continue to talk about Ma Rainey, Rainey was known for her powerful vocal abilities, energetic dispositions, her majestic phrasing, and her moaning style of singing. Uh, her qualities of presence more evident in her mm-hmm. early recordings, one of her early recordings being Bo Weeble Blues and Moonshine Blues, although most of Rainey's songs that mention they did mention sexuality, which is too different today. Um, even though at that time it was because you had the pro-religious <laughs> movement at the time and they didn't want that type of music to be out. In fact, um, they had comedy back in the days, one of them being Red Fox, um, a comedian. They used to have party records and they were the dirty records and you would play them when your parents weren't around. <laughs> and so they had the same thing basically with these records when they were recorded. You know, they had the sexual connotation but we can't judge too quickly because mm-hmm. they were just sharing their experiences at the time and we do we people are going to look back 50 from years from now and listen to hip-hop and they're going to be like man public enemy boy they want no joke back then for how they address things and yeah. <laughs> and and even with um some of the sexuality that we talked about in our music um jodeci is one you know the song freak like me and all these songs that we hear Back in our time growing up, mm-hmm. they're going to look at it and be like, wow, they were really uh, expressive. Now, the music may be quite different than, from, I mean, it will be different 50 years from now, but we have to take in consideration as we look back at the Harlem Renaissance, people will also look back at our time and they may judge, hopefully they'll judge properly um, and get an understanding uh, what that contribution was. And hopefully they have people like you and I that will talk about it and break it down for their generation like we're doing for our generation. And so and so when, when yeah. it talked about all the Ma Rainey songs that mention sexuality refer to love affair with men, some of her lyrics contain references to even lesbianism or even bisexuality. So she was before her time. Um, she was talking about things that go on today, but they were going on during her time as well. Um, and this was back in the like in 19, the 1920s and, you know, during that time. So just imagine. And one of the songs that kind of talk about that was a song that she did in 1928 called Prove, Prove It, or excuse me, Prove It On Me, basically was the name of the song. Mm-hmm. So that was just one of the things that was going on back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on Thanks. to Bessie Smith. Uh, she was an American blues singer, <clears throat> excuse me, widely re- renowned during the jazz age. They nicknamed her the Empress of the Blues. She was the most popular blues singer of the 1920s and 30s. She was in a movie um, that came out, and I'm going to 
going to definitely touch on in a few. But one of the things about her, about her, she was regarded one of the greatest singers of her era, and she was a major influence on fellow blues singers as well as jazz vocalists. Um, she was, she sold, now this is amazing, at the time, sales over 100,000, she sold 100,000 copies of Crazy Blues, which was recorded by, on Okaya Records. Um, I'm sorry, that wasn't by her, that was by a singer, Mamie Smith, who was no relation to her, but it pointed at that time that there was a new market for blues. So recording industries were looking for mm -hmm. black people to try to replicate that success. So they were searching for a female blues singer because mm -hmm. of what Mamie Smith was able to accomplish. But songs like Jailhouse Blues, Workhouse Blues, Prison Blues, it's like everything had a blues at the end of it. You know, go to the kitchen blues, that's a joke, but <laughs> everything had blues on it. Sing, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, sing song, Prison Blues, and send me to, and send me into the electric chair. They, they dealt critically social issues of the day, such as chain gangs, the convict lease system, and capital punishment. So they were dealing with what was going on at the time, but they were pointing mm -hmm. people, they were done in music, just like we do today. Um, some of us, we have socially conscious artists that talk about the things that we're dealing with today. So they were dealing with the things that were going on in it at their time, as we are dealing with things that are going on in our time. And so, mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I know that uh, it's true. I think that's one of the things about creating music and you have to write about what you know and it's part of your experience as an artist and that's just what they were doing. So as maybe a little controversial for some, I think, uh, you know, looking back, uh, it was an important mm -hmm. piece of uh, Yes, it history. was. And we don't want to overlook what they contributed, nor do we want to overlook what they were dealing with at the time because all of that, basically paints the picture to kind of allow you an opportunity to see what they were, what was going on. Because one thing I like to do whenever I talk about something, I like to paint a picture. I want you to imagine yourself there and to kind of grasp or take in what they were doing because it kind of gives you a better perspective as far as what was, what they were um, saying to their audience at the time. Because if we try to look at everything from our construct, like the, the 2000s, we will miss the important part of the song or the music because we're trying to look at it, as you stated earlier, a lens of our time versus their time. And if you look at it, if you can allow your imagination just to go a little deep, you can have a greater appreciation for the music and why they said what they said or did what they, you know, did what they did at the time so i want to make sure that i emphasize that part but mm -hmm. just to kind of move on a little bit with her uh smith emphasized and channel a subculture within the african-american working class uh she incorporated like commentary on social issues like poverty interracial conflict and female sexuality into her lyrics so she kind of in my opinion she was similar to zora neale hurston um what she did with her writings um mm -hmm. i felt like I felt like Bessie Smith did with her music. Um, she kind of gave a female perspective um, in her music, although she did kind of reach out to people that was the working class. And and even with her music being the way it is, I'm sure there were people that were critics of her uh, because they felt like her music were, mm. you know, dealt with the common man. Um, so, but at the end of the day, 
I feel as any artist should do at any given time is be true to yourself because as long as you're true to yourself, you're going to create the music that's true to you. So that's the, that's a good segue to go. If you're an artist and you're trying to find your identity, just find out who you are as a person. And that will lead you to who you should be as a musician or artist, depending on what you choose to do. Um, But just want to touch lastly on one more Mm -hmm. part about Smith. She advocated for a wider vision of African-American women, womanhood beyond domestic, domestic, uh, the domestic viewpoint that people had, piety and conformity. She fought, she sought, excuse me, empowerment and happiness through independent, sassiness and sexual freedom, you know. And although Smith was a voice for many minority groups and one of the most gifted blues performers of the time, the things that her music were, you know, seen in a negative light, which led to many believing that her work was undeserving of serious recognition. So they felt like she wasn't entitled to the position that she had. They felt like she was, her music somewhat in a way was demeaning, which it wasn't in my opinion, but she did get some negative criticism because of her Mm -hmm. willingness to speak freely to some of the things that were happening in her, in our culture at the time. And I felt like she was being honest, Mm -hmm. Um, but all of this, was contributing to what we call a new identity. We were all striving to carve our own lane. When I say we, I mean African-Americans were striving to carve our own lane where we can be seen in a positive light, but also there was some realism in the music that was being heard because people was dealing with some of the struggles that were going on independently, meaning there were things that were going on emotionally. One of them dealing with sexuality, one others dealing with the economic condition that African-Americans was going through. Um, Bessie Smith talked about the chain gain and all the different things that were going on, because just like we deal with mass incarceration today, which pretty much the chain gain is a derivative of that. Uh, they're connected. They were talking about it back then. So these things mm-hmm. weren't going unnoticed, but it was just the fact that they were talking about it. And that's why it's important that we continue to talk about these things today as we continue more. And I didn't get a chance to get to Dizzy Gillespie, but if you have an opportunity, go ahead and check him out um, because he was a great jazz Mm. musician. He kind of falls under that jazz and blues um, genre as well, but he was um, very powerful, very influential during the Harlem Renaissance period. And I will ask you if you have the time, go ahead and research Dizzy Gillespie. I may get a chance to talk about him next week, so if you so if you hear this one, mm-hmm. tune in next week because I want to talk about <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie, Gillespie, but I also want to talk about the different dances that were created during the Hollow Renaissance, which will be next week. So tune in. Continue to continue to follow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well. Oh, I was just gonna say all that. What was going mm-hmm. on in those juke joints? What was happening? Yeah, there's, absolutely. In there. There's definitely some dancing because. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they weren't sitting down the whole time. <laughs> so um, definitely follow <laughs> us next week. We're going to continue the series going on. Thanks once again. I thank Black Canadian for allowing us to share this information to a broader audience and having the opportunity where you can go back and listen over and over again because it's now available on Spotify. And what are the other places they can listen to the, listen to the podcast? Yeah, it's on uh, Spotify, uh, Anchor, as you said, and okay. uh, so Apple you need Podcasts to, as well. So you need to tune yep. in, yep. need to lock it in, 
and not only tune in, give your feedback, let us know how we're doing, and let your friends know. Tell a friend to tell a friend, and that way we can continue to do this. And we appreciate you for listening. We appreciate you for sharing it with other people. And once again, let's continue to um, preserve the culture as we continue to talk about the Hall of Renaissance. Thanks again, Solrak, for your time and your knowledge and having a chat with me today. So, yeah, well, uh, everyone, Absolutely. please listen in for next time. <laughs>